welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. Episode five, welcome back. Say hi to the people, Megan. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking about the book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success by Julie Lithcott Hames. And I love this book in the lane of launching kids. So I think it's a good thing to keep in mind. The other thing is I heard a parenting expert a long time ago talk about what she called the rule of five. And that is that in parenting, we need to be kind of looking at and talking to our kids about anything they could face in the next five years. So even if you're thinking, well, this doesn't pertain to me, I'm not launching kids anytime soon. She has a lot to say about what we do when our kids are little in terms of getting them ready for that launch point. And actually it goes back pretty far. So I think this is a great book for parents of kids of all ages. So the author was Stanford University Dean of Freshman for 10 years. So she comes to this book with that perspective, what she saw as freshmen began college. And um, I think she noticed a lot of patterns that she thought were maybe not right and that were causing extra challenge for students. And so she wrote this book as a culmination of that experience, um, just to kind of let parents know what her ideas were as a Dean of Freshmen at one of the nation's top universities. So she's written the book in four parts. We're going to talk about two of the parts of the book this week and two of the parts of the book next week. So the four parts she wrote are what we're doing now. So she kind of talks about what's happening now in the landscape of parenting. And then part two is why we must stop over parenting. So she talks about some research and some observations around that. And then parts three and four, which we'll talk about next week are another way. So she proposes another way for parenting. And part four is daring to parent differently. So today we're going to talk about the first two parts, what we're doing now and why we must stop over parenting. So part one is called what we're doing now. And she starts talking about how when our children are little, our focus is on keeping them safe and sound. And that's biological, right? Every human throughout time has known it's their job to keep their offspring safe. So this transfers to this day and age as um, standing close to a slide as your little you know, child is going down the slide and stuff like that. And then um, what happens is if we're not careful, we just transfer it into the next stage of their life and the next stage of their life. And she does talk about a child abduction study because parents are so hesitant to let their kids go to the park by themselves and stuff like that. And she quotes a study from 2002 in which they learned that stranger abduction only accounts for 0.01% of missing children, which at that time was about 115 children per year in the entire country. And I think parents think it happens a lot more often than that based on behavior. So I just thought it was interesting to think about the actual numbers. Yeah, the world's safer than we think it is. For sure. For sure. She starts by talking about how we protect their physical bodies in the beginning, and then we move to protecting their feelings, right? And our generation, and actually not even mine really, your generation, they talk talk about um, participation trophies and how that really came along Um, in the last several years because parents want all kids to feel like they did a great job and all that stuff over using the word bully. Oh, absolutely. So, and I think in, from the school perspective, we hear constant accusations of bullying. Yeah. Yeah. That don't necessarily meet the definition, which is 
continued harassment over time. So this goes back to Dr. Becky's message too, that kids need to feel comfortable feeling everything. So we actually don't help our kids at all when we protect them from certain feelings because they're only truly at home with themselves when they know no matter what feeling comes up, I can, yeah, I can feel and deal. I'm okay. Right. Then they start, she starts to talk about kids in sports so the message that, that kids in sports are getting and that parents are, you know, adhering to is that they must specialize in a single sport very early. Mm-hmm. Whereas even 20 years ago, kids played all kinds of different sports all throughout childhood and maybe specialized in middle school or high school. Now it's like, if you're not on a club team in second grade, Seven, you're, yeah. yeah, you're behind in that sport. So the other thing she talks about is how parents are committed to not missing a single of their kids' games. Like, I'm sorry I can't come to that. My kid has a game. Like, it's not acceptable for one parent to go to the game. Both parents must go sit at every sporting event. And she's like, I just don't know how we're setting kids up when we send the message that sports are so important that I don't do things with my friends. I don't do all this other stuff to come and watch you play. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I think about it. Interesting point to think about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then she has a section called Our Checklist, Their Life, where she talks about how parents research what's needed on the applications for college. And then they organize a plan, create a list, and then they ensure that their children check every item off the list. While that may help get them in where they need to go, I'm not sure it, it provides the life skills that are needed to be successful once they get there, right? Sure. And then she talks about being there for our children. And I wanted to read two examples straight out of the book because um, she talks about like examples from real life about parents kind of overparenting. So she says, the following are real life examples of parents being there, in quotations, for their pre-collegiate and collegiate children. Rajiv and Parul are from the Washington, D.C. area. Their son, Arjun, was one of my incoming freshmen at Stanford a few years back. On the second day of orientation, the three of them came to see me. Parul began the conversation by stating, Arjun is interested in doing research in chemical engineering, and we'd like to discuss those options with you. Arjun, I replied, that's great. Tell me about your experience with research so I can help you think about the best way to get involved at Stanford. Arjun looked over at his dad, who then told me the rather impressive story of Arjun's experience with research to date. Can you imagine responding to a college employee, a university employee on behalf of your 18 year old child? Um, It's just a lot to think about. And then she gives this example as well. Well, there's uh, six examples. I'm just going to read you that last one and this next one, just two of them. She says, Jacqueline is from Los Angeles. Her daughter, Jamie, is a college sophomore at a large state school. Jacqueline could always be counted on to make sure Jamie met her deadlines in high school. And even today, Jamie still never misses a deadline. Jacqueline calls Jamie every day, both to wake her up and to remind her of her upcoming assignments and test dates. In college. In college. And it sounds like they don't even live in the same house. And she's calling her every day to make sure that she gets up and that she turns in her assignments. I would say... Let's look at those examples, not with eyes of judgment, but to ask ourselves, is that where we want our children to end up someday? And do we always want to have this level of involvement of involvement in our children's lives? Because for me, the answer is a solid no, no. right? Yeah. <laughs> I want them to go out and do what they need to do Be for themselves. Yeah. 
So she says it seems impossible to think about getting there, but then she links it to starting small. Like uh, when she, she raised her kids in the Palo Alto area in California. And they, I guess there was one year where one project was all about all the missions in California and they had to build an example of the mission. Well, in Palo Alto, there's a bunch of engineering folks and stuff like that. And she said some of the projects, like you'd go through the, they do a museum of the project. She's like, you know, right away what adults, yeah, did the project. And I think that's true for any of us who've been in the classroom. You always know. Yeah. The science experiment board that's been done by a parent. Yes. All of it. All of it. And so she says, Hey, like we could look at these parents and be like, Oh my gosh, how could you call your child every day to wake her up? But It starts by doing their science project in fourth grade. I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about it. And then this was so shocking to me. She starts talking about parent involvement in hiring. So after they finish college. Oh my goodness. In one research study, large companies reported witnessing parental involvement 23% of the time. That's crazy. Can you imagine your parent calling your employer? I mean, it's just unbelievable yeah that's that's next level yes totally and then it takes me back to the 80s which you don't remember no sure don't (laughs) megan's a little bit younger than me everyone which she reminds me of on a regular basis anyways there's a commercial in the 80s where they say it's 10 p.m do you know where your children are or sometimes it would come on right before the news 10 o'clock news they flash this commercial that said it's 10 p.m do you know where your children are and then I saw this meme le- recently on Instagram or one of those that says it had a quote from this, you know, commercial and the poster asks, what have we done? How do we get to this place where they used to have to remind their parent, our parents to look for us. Right. And here we are like, we track them. Yeah, now. we track them. Yeah. I know where my kid is every moment of every day. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So that I think is worth reflecting on. So that's kind of the end of her part one, right? Her research based discussion of why we are where we are. Part two, she calls why we must stop over parenting. And she proposes what she calls a different kind of checklist. And this is a checklist of the things that as a dean for freshman at Stanford, she believed every 18-year-old must be able to do. So number one, an 18-year-old must be able to talk to strangers. So that means making their own appointments, ordering for themselves at restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, right? Number two, an 18-year-old must be able to find their way around a campus. If they don't know where they're going, they need to be able to stop and ask specific questions that could get them the information that they need and all of that. Number three, an 18-year-old must be able to manage assignments, workload, and deadlines. Again, Mm -hmm. because you don't want to be calling and helping manage that. So we have to help them in the years before they leave gain those skills to be able to do that. An 18-year-old must be able to contribute to the running of a household. I think sometimes we forget we're raising roommates and we're raising spouses and we're raising, you know, people that are going to have to live in a household with other people someday. And so anything we can help them get a handle on house skills wise and household running wise is great. And that includes like how to manage your finances and how to divvy up chores, all of that stuff. An 18-year-old, number five, an 18-year-old must be able to handle interpersonal matters. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful to coach them how to deal with problems as they come up instead of... solve them for them. Yes, yep. instead of solving it for them. Exactly. Number six, an 18-year-old must be able to cope with life's typical ups and downs. So if there's some gigantic trauma, obviously, yep. we are not talking about that here. But the things that come and go throughout life that cause yep. different emotions and feelings... We have to send our 18-year-olds into the world ready to deal with life's ups and downs. 
An 18-year-old must be able to earn and manage money, so work for the things that they need, know how to save money for a rainy day, all those general things. And then number eight is an 18-year-old must be able to take risks, and she goes on to say, and have the grit to fail and try again and be okay and assess their own risk. I think a lot of times what we do in parenting is take away that little moment where you decide whether or not you're going to take the risk. We decide whether or not they're going to take the risk, and... I feel like we have to get in the habit of letting our kids manage their own risk, like do their own risk assessment and decide, is this worth it or not? And then sometimes learn the hard way that it isn't. Obviously, I'm not talking about the things that could cost them their lives, their health, their safety. I'm talking about things where it's safe. Yeah, Yeah. low cost cost. situations where where they're able to learn how to weigh the risk. She also serves up this reminder. If they have to call us to ask us how to do these things, they don't have the skill. So not only do you want them to be able to do it, but when, by the time they're 18, you want them to be able to do it so well, yeah, yeah, that they don't need to consult with you on the, you know, exact Mm -hmm. details of how to do things. So basically we're working ourselves out of a job. Yeah. That's the goal. And I think it's hard because parents want to be loved and needed by their children. Of course. But I feel like that being loved part is authentic and becomes even more authentic Mm -hmm. as they realize all the tools and skills you've helped them. them. Yeah. Yeah. Get over the years. And then she talks about how there are some studies that prove correlation between overparenting and mental health struggles. So it's not causation yet. They haven't, they are not at the place in study where they can say, yes, this overparenting definitely causes mental health struggle, but they for sure have noticed a correlation. So, um, we overparent, 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 and then they move out into the real world and it causes a bit of a mental health health crisis. Cause they're like, Oh no, I don't, I don't know how to manage these things yeah. that keep coming up for me. And then she talks about the three ways that parents overparent that can cause harm. So she says, number one, um, harm happens when we do for our own kids what they can already do for themselves. So grabbing back that power when they can own it and manage it is not good for them. Number two is when we do for our kids what they can almost do for themselves. Mm, We're basically like, oh, you're not quite there yet. Yeah, we... Yes, exactly. We take the productive struggle away. Yes, we take the productive struggle away. And... If you think about it, Dr. Becky's book talks about productive yeah. struggle mindset. Yeah. She has a whole productive chapter on productive yeah. struggle. Like it is so important that we let our kids have that productive struggle. And then number three, she says the other way that overparenting can cause harm is when we allow our parenting to be driven by our own ego, the way we mm-hmm. want to be seen as parents and all of that versus sure. what we're trying to develop in our children who are developing humans. And she also goes on to say, hey, overparenting is not good for parents. It causes right. such high levels of stress. You're trying to manage your own life and somebody and else's theirs. life. Yeah. yeah. And if you have more than one kid, then you're trying to manage three somebody. Yes. Three yeah. and four lives. Yeah. You know, it's just a lot. And stress is not good for us. There's a million studies that will show us that. Well, maybe not a million, but a lot of studies that will show <laughs> us that. She closes out this part two by looking really critically at the college admission process. She basically says what we've done with standardized tests, what we've done with making kids feel like they have to have a perfect GPA and take the hard courses and on and on and on and on and volunteer and have a community service project and all that stuff. She's like, we ask children, and I love the way she says this, to mortgage their childhood Mm. for their adulthood. That's good, yeah. We have to stop and ask, like, is that actually what we want to do? Right. And is that what they want to do? It's their one shot at yeah it's their one life 
just thinking about the college admissions process and all the details of that. And she just really says, hey, we've got to reform this process. And it's going to take all the adults that are stakeholders in it coming together to yeah, say, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, this isn't this isn't working. Yeah, this isn't right. It's not yeah. what's right for kids, you know. So that's a wrap on parts one and two, and we'll cover parts three and four next week. But this is a great book, How to Raise an Adult by Julie Lithcott Haynes, and I highly recommend it. That's it for today. Remember, whatever you're facing in parenting, it won't always be this way. Bye.